Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. Again, we have the privilege as the people of God to gather around the Word of God. And this morning we're going to spend our time in 2 Peter chapter 3. In order to rightly orient ourselves to this particular passage of scriptures, I want to offer a few words by way of introduction. We remember that the Apostle Peter is a man zealous for the gospel. He loves the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his message here is is rooted in the gospel. But he recognizes that there are many who would want to undermine that message. And so in the first chapter of 2 Peter, he reminds the believers that God's power has granted to them all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then he exhorts them to confirm their calling. In chapter 2, he describes the false teachers, both their destructive teaching and their destructive way of living, their immoral lifestyles. The believers needed to be aware of this so that they wouldn't fall prey to the false teaching. And that brings us to chapter 3, where we'll spend our time this morning. And in the verses we're going to read together in just a moment, we'll see three phrases that are used to refer to the end, the time when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. In verse 7, we see the day of judgment. In verse 10, the day of the Lord, and in verse 12, the day of God. And what is crucial for you and I to understand is that the end is coming. The world as we know it will not continue forever. And so the question we must ask ourselves this morning is this, how are we to live in light of the end? The answer that we'll find in the text before us and and the main point this morning is this. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must pursue holy and godly lives as we eagerly anticipate his certain return. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must pursue holy and godly lives as we eagerly anticipate his certain return. I would invite you to stand with me now as we read God's word together. We're going to read from 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You may be seated. Father, we praise you this morning for your word. We pray that you would give us an understanding mind this morning. Conform us to Christ, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are forgetful people, are we not? And forgetfulness is, is not something that, that comes along just as we get older. It seems to be something inherent to us as human beings. From little on up, we see that we forget. Those of us who have had any interaction with children, as parents, grandparents, teachers, if you're a coach, you recognize children forget. We find ourselves asking, how many times must I remember you? What must I remind you? Oh, dear child, we recognize we are forgetful people. And our forgetfulness touches the whole range of human experience. We forget small things like where we put our keys some of us more than others. Uh, we forget small things like, where did I put my wallet? We're also, we forget more serious things. Like, what is it that God has said? And who am I in Christ Jesus? In the verses that we've just read together, we see what Peter is doing. He is, he is stirring up the sincere minds of the believers to whom he wrote. He wants to stimulate their minds to right thinking and thus to have a genuine understanding of the things that are to come. And the means by which he does this, the means by which he stirs up their mind is by way of reminder. We're forgetful people. Let me remind you, says Peter, Back in chapter 1, Peter knew that his time was short. He knew that he was going to die soon, and so he desires to remind the believers of the truth. And this was especially important, for the false teachers had arrived. They were promoting ungodly and immoral living, coupled with false teaching. He wanted to remind the believers, he said, I stir you up by way of reminder. 
Is this not refreshing for you and I this morning? God in his kindness reminds us of his glorious truth. How often we forget. How often we need to be reminded day after day after day of what the scripture teaches. Incidentally, this is the one, of, one of the things that we do as brothers and sisters. We remind one another of the truth. We remind one another of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews said, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That sounds to me like reminding one another. This is what Peter is doing in his letters, and we would do well to pay careful attention this morning. The reality is that we have an adversary who is working tirelessly to distract us. In fact, maybe at this very moment you realize your mind has been wandering away. You're thinking about where you're going to eat lunch or what you're going to do this afternoon. And so I invite you, come back. Come back. We need to be reminded this morning. We need to be reminded of how to live in light of the end. We're going to divide this passage up into three sections. The first is verses 1 through 7. And here we see that we are to remember. We are to remember the day of judgment is certain. Remember the day of judgment is certain. According to the Apostle Peter, you need to remember this, believer. Remember what the prophets have foretold. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. The last days began with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they continue into the present. Indeed, we are living in the last days, and there's no shortage of scoffers. Those who would scoff at the thought of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the world, this scoffing may come by way of words, of words of mockery and skepticism, or simply by a lifestyle that demonstrates no regard for Almighty God, thus scoffing at Him. They will say in verse 4, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So scoffers in the present, they, they look around and see that Things seem to keep on, keeping on as the way that they always have. Things continue as they have from the beginning, year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia, and things seem to be the same. They conclude the judgment will not come. This false conclusion, namely that Christ will not return, enables them to pursue their sinful desires, that is, to indulge the flesh with no restraint. For after all, if there's no day of judgment, who's concerned about immorality? Peter wants his readers to be aware, and he calls them to remember the words of the prophets, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He says the scoffers overlooked this one fact. That by the word of God, the earth was formed out of water and that water was then the means of the cataclysmic judgment that came upon the entire earth in the form of a global flood. We read of the creation account and the subsequent flood in the book of Genesis, the very first book of Scripture, and the scoffers have overlooked this. Let's go back to the first book. Turn, turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Genesis. Very first book and the very first verse. There we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we read the creation account, the refrain that's repeated over and over is this, and God said, and God said, and God said. By the word of God, creation came into existence. After creating the heavens and the earth and the plants and the animals and the human beings, we read in verse 31 of chapter 1, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But sadly, things did not remain good. Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit in the garden, and in so doing brought a curse on themselves and on the creation and upon every human being. We call this sin in the garden and the subsequent curse, the fall. And as we keep reading through this book of Genesis, we see the sad consequences of the fall being lived out. You can turn over a few pages to chapter 6. And there in verse 5 of chapter 6, I want to read a bit from, from Genesis to help us understand what Peter is telling us the scoffers are denying. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God then instructed Noah to build an ark and to take into it his family and animals of every kind, male and female. And then in verse 11 of chapter 7, we read this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. We jump down to verse 20. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Brothers and sisters, may we not become so familiar with accounts such as this 
that our minds become dull to their reality. The earth was destroyed by a flood. We know this because we read it in the Word of God. Furthermore, the evidence for a global flood is abundant. We could simply mention the Grand Canyon or the fossils of sea creatures discovered on mountains throughout the world. The flood happened. But, but, says Peter, the scoffers overlook this. And they do so deliberately. They say things have just been continuing as they always have. Oh, that we would not be lulled into complacency by this way of thinking. The waters that flooded the earth serve as a warning, a a precursor of the judgment that is to come. Look back with me now at 2 Peter chapter 3 again. In verse 7, he says, But by the same word, by the same word that is the word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Lord promised that he would never again destroy the world with a flood. And we're reminded of this promise every time we see a rainbow in the sky. But he will judge the world again. And this time it will be a judgment of fire. The prophets and the apostles have told us this. Indeed, we see the predictions of this coming judgment in the Holy Scripture, the book that we hold in our hands this morning. And what we know is on the day of judgment, the ungodly will be destroyed. The ungodly are those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. These will suffer the punishment of God. Remember, the day of judgment is certain. History teaches us that God will not spare the guilty. Peter has taught us this in chapter 2. He's warning about the false teachers. He's speaking of their impending judgment. And he goes back to the Old Testament and cites examples from the Old Testament as evidence of the certainty of God's judgment. And also, don't miss this because here is hope, salvation. In fact, as we read through the scripture, we see these two juxtaposed, set next to one another, God's judgment and God's salvation. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, If he did not spare the ancient world, there is judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, there is salvation. And in verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, there is judgment. And if he rescued righteous Lot, There's salvation. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Therefore, we must not be deceived by those who scoff at the coming of Christ. Instead, we must remember. We must remember the day of judgment is certain. 
And as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the certainty of God's judgment should produce in us humility. Humility. We who were running from God, he sought us out. He granted us repentance. He made us his own. We should be humbled by the reality that by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've escaped the judgment of God. We should be motivated to pray for the lost. For those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, remember the day of judgment is certain. Second, we must recognize. We must recognize the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Please look with me at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Here is a call for us to understand the vantage point from which we view the world and the way that we understand time. Before we consider our vantage point, I want to remind you of what the way that Peter addresses the readers. Notice what he says. He calls them beloved. Beloved. Those who are loved by God, recipients of God's grace. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you're loved by God. Beloved, I want you to hear this. Don't overlook this, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Suffice it to say, our vantage point, our perspective, is limited. And unspeakably so when compared to the eternal God. God who knows no beginning and no end. Psalm 90 in verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And he continues, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. We're bound by time. God is timeless. We're created beings. God is uncreated. One day we will die. God cannot die. The point here is that it's essential for us to understand that we must not assess the timeline of events from our limited perspective. Rather, we must believe the word of God and trust that God will bring about in his perfect timing the day of judgment according to his perfect plan. Indeed, our vantage point, our, our perspective is, is limited. We're reminded of our limited perspective when we travel on an airplane. Those of us who've had this experience, perhaps you're, you're fortunate enough, if you like a window seat, to have a window seat. And as you're moving down the runway, you're taking a look out the window and you're taking in perhaps the trees that are off in a distance and some of the buildings of the city that are nearby. And as the plane is moving off the ground, you recognize pretty quickly 
how small those once large trees and those massive buildings, how small they are. And as the plane continues to ascend, you realize now not only am I able to see the tops of the buildings, but I'm able to take in entire neighborhoods. And as the plane continues to rise, you're, you're now able to see the entire city. And that once massive river that was home to innumerable boats is now just a thin line, barely visible to the naked eye. And just before you pass through that last layer of clouds, you look down and realize, oh my, oh my, my perspective is limited. Peter tells us that God's timing is not our timing. God is patient. He will fulfill his promises and he will do so in his time, but he's patient. Not wishing that any should perish. This reminds us of the words of the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18 and verse 32 where he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Do you hear these words? This is a, a call to repentance. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, so turn and live. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, the seeming delay of the return of Christ in the day of judgment is actually a testimony of the kindness, patience, and long-suffering character of the living God. Repeated throughout Scripture is this phrase, the Lord is slow to anger. Should we not praise Him for this this morning? Praise God that He's slow to anger. He's giving people time, even today, time to repent. But one day He will bring judgment. And that day, the day of the Lord, will come like a thief. We must recognize this. Jesus spoke of his return in this way in Matthew's gospel. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. On the day of the Lord, verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be burned up and destroyed, and the earth and the deeds done on it will be disclosed, be exposed. On the day of the Lord, there will be no secrets, every deed will be exposed. The omniscient God, the one who knows all things, will bring every deed into judgment, every thought, every word, every intention.
every action, every motive will be examined before the face of God. And so we must recognize the day of the Lord will come like a thief and we must be prepared for his return. We prepare ourselves for his return by trusting in the Lord Jesus. Because if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus, that day will be a day of rejoicing. Because we're covered in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of our sins will be covered by his blood. And we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We prepare for the day by trusting in Jesus and by living for him. Finally, we must respond. We must respond. The day of God calls for holy and godly living. As Peter reaches the end of this section, he writes now in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What Peter is doing, he's, he's linking for us. He's, he's, he's linking the reality of the end with the way that we should live, living in light of the end. This is what's coming. The world that you and I are presently inhabiting will one day come to an end. Therefore, we must be people who are pursuing holy and godly lives as we eagerly anticipate the return of the Lord. Peter says, all these things are thus to be dissolved. Just this present world. And so it's right for us to ask questions like this. What are we pursuing? What treasure are we laboring to amass? A prestigious career at the expense of time with God's people? Investing in our young people, our children? Wealth? Some possession? Do we not know that this world is going to pass away? One day it will be no more. Summertime is just around the corner. And some of you, I'm confident, will find yourself on some beach somewhere at some point this summer. Imagine you're walking down that beach and as you're uh, just on a kind of a leisurely stroll, you, you observe an artist sculpting this sandcastle and you're impressed by what you see and and even more so as you make your way back a couple hours later to see this beautiful creation it's elaborate and uh you're not even sure how the artist was able to do this it's it's multi-level and there's this this massive staircase in the front leading up to that second level and there's even some windows and you're in awe and you're not alone because this, this small crowd has gathered around and everyone's got their phone, they're taking pictures, and you realize you've left your phone back in the hotel room. But this creation is so beautiful that you decide it's worth your time and effort to, to go back. And so you make your way back to your car, 
back to the room, grab your phone. And as you make your way back to the beach, that once blue sky is now dark. And menacing clouds hang threateningly overhead, but you keep going. And by the time you arrive back to the beach, the rain has just started to fall a little bit, but you're confident you can make it there in time. And so you, you hurry along back to this, this beautiful creation. And the faster you run, the, the harder the rain falls. And by the time you arrive, you're in a torrential downpour. And this once elaborate sandcastle is now nothing more than sludgy sand. And that once elaborate staircase is now just a mound. May we consider carefully the words we've read. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? It's so easy to get mixed up, to spend inordinate amounts of time and energy on things that simply will not last. This doesn't mean that we're not to create beautiful works of art. Please don't hear me say that. Or that we're not to work with diligence in our jobs and so on. No, no. Rather, it's a call to pursue holiness and godliness in the midst of our earthly pursuits, all the while keeping our eyes fixed on eternity and praying, Oh God, help me. Help me to maintain an eternal perspective. Help me to live for your glory by keeping the end in mind. The Lord Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We mustn't be duped by the adversary and, and the allurement of the world, both of which seduce us into thinking that this life is all that there is. Instead, may we be people who live holy and godly lives, working with integrity in our jobs, being honest with people. Pursuing sexual purity, demonstrating by our lifestyle that Christ is our greatest treasure. Christ, the one whom we love. Christ, whom the one that we adore. Christ, the one who we live for. At the beginning of this short letter, Peter assured the readers that God's divine power has granted them all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, God in his grace has given us what we need to live for his glory. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We need to hear this clearly this morning. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. By faith we receive, we receive the righteousness of Christ. We receive eternal life. This is our salvation. And evidence of that salvation is revealed in the way we live. Peter exhorts us to confirm our calling, and the way that we do that is to examine our lives and consider if they are marked by holiness and godliness. The pursuit of holiness and godliness does not save us. But it is evidence that we have been saved. The pursuit of holiness and godliness does not save us. But 
It is evidence that we have been saved. My friend, if you're here this morning and you've been striving to live a moral life, a moral life thinking that you are somehow able to merit the favor of God, please hear this truth. The scripture says, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, no amount of striving will earn us eternal life. That's not possible. Salvation is by grace, which means it's a gift. The hope for us is that Jesus Christ has come. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross and on the cross, he took on himself the punishment for sins. He died in our place and rose from the dead. Therefore, if we repent of sin and believe in Christ, we will be forgiven and we will inherit eternal life. For those who are in Christ Jesus this morning, let us live holy and godly lives as we eagerly anticipate the coming day of God. Let us pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Live for him. Love him. Devote your life to following him. Tell others about him. Verse 13 says, and here's hope for the believer, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do we hear these beautiful words this morning? new heavens, and a new earth. And what is it that dwells there? Righteousness. Righteousness. Through Christ Jesus, we are declared righteous. And we will dwell with him for all eternity. Let this motivate us to godly living. I'll close with the words of the Apostle John. We went to Genesis 1 already this morning. We're going to close in the last book, Revelation. Revelation 21 says this about the new heavens and the new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. May we be motivated and encouraged to live holy and godly lives as we eagerly anticipate the certain return of Christ. By God's grace, may we live in light of the end. Lord, we praise you this morning. We praise you for giving us your word. You've told us who you are, who we are, what separates us from you, and the beautiful hope of the gospel. Lord, we plead with you that for those who don't know you this morning, Grant them repentance. They would look to Christ 
as their only Savior and that your name would be honored in this. Help us as your people to live in light of the end. We pray in Christ's name, amen.